Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today, we are very honored and pleased to have with us Professor Henry Abramson. Dr. Abramson received his PhD in history from the University of Toronto and has held postdoctoral and visiting appointments at Harvard, Cornell, Oxford, and the Hebrew University. Dr. Abramson serves as the Dean of the Lander College of Arts and Sciences, a division, as we can see on the screen, of Turo University. Uh, an internationally acclaimed speaker, Dean Abramson's weekly lectures in Jewish history are viewed by thousands upon thousands worldwide. Professor Abramson also delivers the Jewish History Daf Yomi podcast, which is a, product, a project of the Orthodox Union. Professor Abramson has authored six books and numerous scholarly papers. His works include A Prayer for the Government, Ukrainians and Jews in Revolutionary Times, 1917-1920, Reading the Talmud, Developing Independence in Gemara. And today we will be discussing Torah from the Years of Wrath, 1939 to 1943, historical context of the Eish Kodesh. And as you will hear about this incredible Safer book, uh, urge all of our listeners and viewers as I did to simply go onto Amazon, click a button, and you can have it delivered anywhere in the world for free. Again, Dr. Abramson, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. Uh, just a little bit about your backgrounds and how you became interested in Rabbi Kalanimus Kalmish Shapiro, the Piazetsna Rebbe. Sure. Well, um, I come from a small milling town in northern Ontario, Canada. Most people say, you know, you come from Canada, so Toronto or Montreal, uh, neither and actually quite a bit further north from both of them. Um, and I didn't really get uh, a strong exposure to traditional Judaism until later in life, um, but largely through the efforts of my wife, who uh, similarly was interested in Judaism later on in her life, I uh, ended up in yeshiva in Yerushalayim, where I had the great good fortune of studying with Rabbi Nachman Bowman. And he pulled out a few of the young men in uh, the yeshiva or Sameach, for um, Friday morning shiurim, I think it was Friday morning, uh, where we just have a little chabura in his kitchen looking at the works of the Piasechna Rebbe, of Rabbi Shapiro. And um, we didn't actually learn Eish Kodesh together. Uh, we learned the Shloshim Amarim that are at the end of his first work, the Chobas Atalmidim, but it was just so mind-alteringly expansive that I could not let go of the work of this particular 20th century individual. Uh, as the years went on and I combined my yeshiva study with my graduate studies in history, I was quite fascinated with uh, his work on the Holocaust in particular and engaged in a many-year uh, study of the Eish Kodesh uh, with the Rabbi Shlomo Ackerman in North Miami Beach, Florida, where we were living for uh, oh, about 16 odd years. And um, the end result was this particular book that uh, you held up a few minutes ago. Um, briefly, what is the history of Piazetna Hasidut and that of the Rebbe's life before World War II? Oh, sure. Okay. So uh, 
Piasechna Hasidut really begins with this Rebbe, the Piasechna Rebbe. Uh, he, he is, uh, lineage comes primarily from Grodzisk. And so related to that particular type of Hasidic Chagas. Uh, actually, one of the best people to ask that particular question is not on our conversation now, but Daniel Reiser, uh, my colleague in Israel, who published a remarkable two-volume series, uh, critical annotated version of the Eish Kodesh itself. He has uh, some excellent uh, bibliographic material there on the background on Grudzisk and the influence, especially in the second edition of his work. Um, but what happened was there was a, uh, as is not uncommon, a little bit of a division as to who should lead the community after the Rebbe's father passed away. There were two significant contenders. One of them was the Rebbe himself, who was rather young at the time. Uh, but as was his way, he chose not to accept uh, you know, the, the, the traditional court, and he moved himself to Warsaw and nearby Piasechna, which is a very small town, about 5,000 people, about 14 kilometers outside of Warsaw. And he divided his time between the yeshiva that he built in Warsaw, which is a very significant yeshiva, a very large yeshiva called Das Moshe, and uh, the rest of the year he spent in this little village, Piasechna. And so that particular town became, as it were, the, the founding court. And uh, except for the transplanted Piasechna Hasidim in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem, uh, that was the initiation of the Piasechna movement. Who was Emanuel Ringenblum? And what was the Oneg Shabbat project? Uh, you know, it, I... I can I go back to the last question? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I, I answered, you answered really, you asked me really two questions there. One was how did Piasech and Hasida start? And then a little bit about the Rebbe's life before World War II. And I basically only answered the first part. I would love to say something about the second part because it's brilliant and huge and really important what the Rebbe had in mind with your permission. Absolutely. Sure. So um, the Rebbe had a, a rather radical and revolutionary approach to the problems of 20th century Judaism in Eastern Europe. Um, he felt that Hasidus had become quite stagnant in central Poland in particular. And he argued that uh, you know, a lot of the norms that had been established over the 19th century really had to be revisited and, uh, and broken down again. He felt that the yeshivas were no longer adequately serving the population who were you know, uh, fractionating themselves and, and the youth in particular were separating off into various political movements, communist movement, Zionist movements, all kinds of movements that were uh, either uh, neutral towards or even worse, antithetical towards traditional lifestyle of the Hasidic orientation. And so he wanted to start things all over again. And he had a massive plan uh, that was basically going to be a combination of a series of books that would go along with a small social movement. And he actually managed to put these things into play. And it was unfortunately truncated by World War II. But the book that appeared, that was the first in the series, is the so-called Chovast Atalmidim, which I mentioned a few moments ago <clears throat> in connection with Rabbi Nachman Bowman's that's all. The Chovast Atalmidim, published in 1932, uh, the translation of the title is A Student's Obligation, or The Obligation of the Student, uh, is an amazing book that's essentially directed at 10 to 12-year-old boys. Mm -hmm. And it's a manual 
for how to grow spiritually, how to orient yourself towards becoming, you know, spiritually at your potential. And, and you know, even though it's written for adolescents, it's totally brilliant and completely applicable to adults. I constantly learn quite a bit from it every time I review it. There is an introduction at the beginning that's directed to parents and teachers to explain their role in this process. And then, of course, there are these amazing three Kabbalistic essays at the end, which is what I studied with Rabbi Bowman in particular. And his idea was to start from the youth and slowly mold them through his literary efforts to become these spiritual giants. He planned and actually wrote two more books in this series, which were buried along with the Eish Kodesh that we'll discuss shortly in the Warsaw Ghetto and were discovered and were published after the war. So we actually have his whole spiritual plan from about the age 10 or 12 of the subject up until the age of young married and in cold out, like early 20s, 26, 27. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. At the same time, he also planned to seed specific towns in Eastern Europe with extremely dedicated focused groups of Hasidim who would gather nightly for a rigorous discussion of spiritual matters and to support each other spiritually, psychologically, financially, and to grow the Hasidic communities in those towns. If it sounds a lot like Chabad, it should, because I think much of the Chabad model of Shlichut is... Uh, probably not consciously modeled on the P.S. Nishna model because he intended it to be secret. But uh, we know quite a bit about it because he uh, wrote a very small book that outlined his plan called B'nai Machshava Tova. And he considered this book such a holy achievement that he wouldn't even have it printed in Poland. He had it printed in Jerusalem and then shipped back to Poland and 12 copies were circulated. Uh, luckily, amazingly, one of them survived the war, and um, uh, the people who owned it consulted with the Ger Rebbe, uh, who said that, yes, it should be published, it should be made available to the wider world, and so we have his whole plan laid out in exactly how you set up these communities, how, what you're supposed to do when you get together on a nightly level, rules of discipline, conduct, absolutely fantastic. So much more to say about that, but that was kind of like the way he planned his life, and then, of course, World War II. And that, I hope, answers your question a little more Absolutely. thoroughly. Absolutely. I'm going to Emmanuel Ringelblum now, if you like. Yeah, yes, please. Thank you. Another, another hugely inspirational figure that, that I, you know, sometimes I think about him, especially now because we're speaking in Elul. I think about, uh, you know, role models in my own life and how far am I away from these figures. And Emmanuel Ringelblum is one of those individuals. Uh, he was a great historian, not, a, uh, not an overtly religious man, but a great Polish historian who um, found himself trapped in the Warsaw Ghetto with the Nazi occupation. And he made the momentous decision, which has really changed the world, uh, certainly of Jewish scholarship, maybe the Jewish world as a whole, that he recognized early on in the war that this was a novum, a tremendum. It was something completely new and awful, awesome in the original sense of the word that was happening to the Jews of Warsaw. And he considered it his personal mission to record everything that happened in the ghetto for future generations. So he assembled a group of amateur historians whom he called zamlers, collectors, 
uh, who were had some expertise sometimes in particular areas of Jewish life. And he sent them out. It was a secret society. They were constantly afraid of being discovered by the Nazis. And so they went under the code name Oneg Shabbat. Uh, they had cells. People didn't know each other and things like that. And the secret code words and things like that. Uh, and he had them go out and like record everything. Like what was going on uh, with education in the ghetto? Uh, you know, we had actually medical schools operating in the Warsaw ghetto. What was going on with, with culture? We had lending libraries. We had theater and so on. What was going on with the demographic status, the uh, the tremendous starvation that was happening, the influx of refugees in the ghetto? Did very detailed statistical analysis based on, you know, sometimes quite uneven data, but nevertheless really put a, a tremendous professional effort into bringing this all together. And um, this particular archive called Oneg Shabbat featured Rabbi Shimon Huberband, which I think you you were hoping we'd yeah. speak about him shortly, yeah, Absolutely, right? yes. That's he fine. Actually, he, was actually speak a, about him now. <laughs> he was actually a cousin. Of, I'm very excited about this material. You know, it's so inspirational to me. Uh, Rabbi Huberband was actually a cousin to the P.S. Session Rebbe, and his task was give us details on what religious Jews are doing in the occupation. How is religious life working? And he went out there and recorded a phenomenal amount of material, uh, which was later published under the title Kiddush Hashem in English by Yeshiva University Press. Uh, a remark, it's an abridgment but it's a remarkable collection of documents that attest to the nature of religious life under this incredible circumstances. This uh, organization that, that um, Raul Hilberberg, uh, that Raul Hilberg created um, was called Oneg Shabbat. And towards the end of 1942, it became very clear that the ghetto was going to be completely destroyed. Um, it, the massive deportations had already happened, and there were only a few tens of thousands of Jews left behind, primarily for slave labor. Um, and so um, Hilberg began to. Um, I'm sorry, I keep on saying Raoul Hilberg. I'm confusing. Manuel Ringelblum. Manuel Ringelblum, thank you. <laughs> Raul Hilberg, also a great scholar of the right, Holocaust, absolutely. but my brain absolutely. was kind of like all jammed up because I had so many exciting things to tell you that uh, Emmanuel Ringelblum right. uh, realized that the Warsaw Ghetto was going to be destroyed. Uh, and in fact, it was the, the great uprising would occur in April of 1943. Um, and so what he did was he said, OK, Zamlers, it's time for us now to actually inter our findings into the ground in Warsaw. Uh, for later generations. And so his, his remarkable band of amateur historians often composed their last wills and testaments. And then they, they put all of the documents that they had assembled or written into these containers and they buried them in three caches throughout the city of Warsaw. Um, they each of, because they were worried about being discovered, uh, they didn't tell each other where the other caches were. The first cache was unearthed in 1946. Uh, there was one survivor from that particular cell who knew exactly what it, where it was buried, and they went and, um, and dug it up. Unfortunately, they used these tin metal boxes, and water had penetrated the seals, and so the documents were virtually illegible, and, and most of it was lost. Uh, the other cache was discovered. There were no survivors who remembered where the other two were. Uh, the, the second cache was discovered in 
December 1950, when a Polish construction worker was excavating the former ghetto to build new construction, and he came across two milk containers. If you remember back in the day, maybe you do, when they used to deliver milk, and uh, the, the milkman, who may even have been on a wagon with wheels, I don't remember quite back that far, probably you not, but they had these massive tin containers about this big, this is my hands here, a little bigger than that, that they would fill with milk and then they would fill the individual bottles. So these were really quite well sealed. And uh, when they dug up these two milk containers, they found it filled with all these Hebrew manuscripts. They went to the uh, Jewish Historical uh, Association in Warsaw Society, and uh, that's where the P.S. Session Rebbe's writings were included. The third cache, unfortunately, remains undiscovered to this day. Somewhere in Warsaw, there is another huge window into the world of the, uh, the strange world of the Nazi-occupied Warsaw, but we're still waiting for someone to come across it. Wow. Well, I should also mention that, that Ringo Bloom and his family and Huberband uh, and his family were all martyred in the Holocaust, and uh, as was the Rebbe himself. How many sermons, drashot, of the Rebbe are extant, and what period do they cover? So I assume you're asking specifically about the wartime sermons? Yes, yes. Because he does another volume of sermons was published under a different title, Der HaMelech, but they're primarily late 20s, 1930s. The book that is known as Eish Kodesh contains the drashos that the Rebbe offered throughout the war years from September of 1943 with the, um, with the invasion of Warsaw, right around this time of year, Rosh Hashanah uh, in 1939, excuse me, up until he, uh, he realized that he, the Warsaw ghetto was doomed. His last actual drasha is dated in uh, the summer of 1942, but we know that he went back and annotated the original version and added new pieces and corrected pieces and even added, a, we have a few scraps of documentation like correspondence uh, with, um, with Oneg Shabbos and so on. So there is, I believe, 186 of those sermons altogether. Um, and there are some gaps uh, when the Rebbe appears to have disappeared from the scene. We know he went into hiding for some period of time when the Nazis were looking for him. Uh, we also suspect that maybe he had suffered from one of the typhus waves that swept across uh, the ghetto. Uh, but basically, he, he kept up a fairly rigorous schedule of delivering drushos and then recording them all the way from September 1939 to uh, July of 1942. What methodology did you use to link the Rebbe's sermons to the events that were taking place in the ghetto? That's, that's an, an excellent question. And I think it, um, it's something that I'm, I'm very proud of. Uh, I think that uh, it required certainly not only a, a level of scholarly and intellectual effort, but it also offered, uh, required me to really exert myself on a spiritual level as well. Because the, the, the Rebbe's writings, when they were discovered in 1950, uh, they were later published in 1960, and we've had them for quite some time. And initially, scholars were thrilled. Oh my gosh, this is something which is sui generis. It's one of a kind. We have nothing at all like this from anywhere in the entire period of the Holocaust. Uh, and we can 
press a little further on that point later if you like, but basically this is the only book of its nature that we have from the Holocaust. But when scholars dove in to say, okay, what does it say to us about the Holocaust, about the history of the Holocaust? What does it say to us about God? What does it say to us about Hasidut? What, what can we learn from it? It was very, very difficult because the Rebbe uh, completely avoided, with one minor exception, completely avoided locating any of his drashot in time or space. I mean, if you didn't know what you were reading, if you picked up a copy of Eish Kodesh and started reading a few pieces here and there, you would say, this is like a really depressing book of 19th century Hasidic thought. I mean, they're constantly going back to the problem of evil, trying to understand why God allows these things to happen and so on over and over and over again. But you wouldn't get, there's no markers that specifically say when and where it was written. He never uses the word Nazi or German he hardly uses the word war, and usually it's in the context of like the uh, war of the Maccabees, for example. There's no, so like, it's so kind of like floating out in space and not physically connected to the mundane quotidian world in which these events were actually unfolding. So um, historians have traditionally avoided this book because, first of all, you have to get a handle on the rabbinic background on the Kabbalistic background, on the Hasidic background of what the text actually says. And then even if you decipher it, you still don't know what he's talking about with regards to Holocaust. So the, the con minor contribution that I made is I went back and I read as much as I could from the voluminous descriptions we have of daily life in the ghetto. We have journals, we have diaries, we have newspaper accounts uh, from multiple sources. And I tried to like read everything I could about a street-by-street street description of what happened in the ghetto in a particular week. And then with that in my mind, I read the Rebbe's drusha for that Shabbos. And all of a sudden, it fell so amazingly into place that Adarava, the opposite of what everyone was thinking, he was specifically addressing issues that were happening to the Jews in this particular week. He was specifically addressing their concerns by uh, attaching what they were feeling to the Parsha that week in an amazing way that, that must have electrified his audience. I, I would invest myself in this project by imagining myself sitting in the Rebbe's shul as the Rebbe got up to deliver this drasha and thinking about what happened during the week and then I realized, oh my gosh, he's totally addressing the concerns that I have. And this just, you know, opened up the world for me. You know, you said some very nice things about me in the introduction. I wanted to share with you one thing that I heard recently that I cannot confirm, but if it's true, it makes me feel incredibly good because uh, got Rabbi uh, Moshe Weinberger, who is one of the world's experts on P.S. Session of Hasidus. Uh, he lives not too far here in, uh, in Woodmere, New York. And he wrote uh, one of the Haskamos for the book, which I'm very grateful for. But apparently one of his Talmidim said to him, or said to me, that he heard the Rebbe say, uh, the Rabbi Weinberger say, that it is Asur to study the Eish Kodesh without Abramson's book by your side. And I thought, oh, wow, that's great. Uh, but I, I believe, I don't think uh, Asur, uh, forbidden, is not a word I would, <laughs> I would use. But I definitely think that you can't really grasp what the Rebbe is talking about, unless you have a sense of what happened that week, 
you might wonder why is he going off on that direction over there i mean it, it makes like sure it makes sense but it's not like gripping but once you realize that the rebbe is specifically connecting the trauma that the jews experienced that week with the parsha it it's mind-blowing and uh wow okay boy i'm getting so excited i'm gonna have to no 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 this is great um you you refer to um asopian language if i'm pronouncing that correct asop Asopian language. How did the Rebbe utilize that in his talks? What does that mean? So uh, it's a literary term that there's, uh, with all literary terms, a certain amount of debate over the edges of it. Uh, The sense in which I use that phrase, and you're correct, it derives from Aesop, the the famous ancient uh, author of fables, that Aesop would talk about, you know, the fox and the grapes or the fox and the hedgehogs and all kinds of mashalim, all kinds of uh, parables. And uh, on the one level, you can appreciate the parable just the way it stands, right? Like one that I was talking about with my son the other day. Uh, It's just a statement, a one-liner from Aesop. Um, The fox, and they usually often foxes, they they involve foxes. In fact, the Gemara talks about them as maise shualim, right? The stories of foxes. Um, the fox has many strategies, the hedgehog has but one, right? And, and what that, on the one level, just appreciating it, you know, on a literal sense, that means that, you know, the fox, very clever, you know, you know, always planning things, will see a hedgehog run into its burrow and stick its spines outward, and the fox will dream up all kinds of things to try and dig around the burrow, try to attract the uh, the hedgehog out so he can attack him or whatever, and he'll think of all kinds of ways to deal with it. The hedgehog, he doesn't know how to deal with that kind of intelligence, but he knows that if he gets into his burrow and he stays there, eventually the danger will pass. So that's the, that's the literal understanding of it. But the Aesopian dimension is that no, this is talking about business. This is talking about politics. This is talking about human affairs of all types that, you know, there are some people who will constantly find all kinds of ways and stratagems. And maybe if I invest over here, and maybe if I buy this kind of business, and maybe if I, you know, get this kind of education, maybe that'll all work. But in reality, some people just stick to one basic thing that they know works. And in the end, it's a pretty re- reliable strategy. So that's what the Rebbe is essentially doing He's using that kind of multi-tiered hierarchy of meaning where you can read his drashos and they're basically almost, you know, especially for the first two years of the war, they're basically Chumash Rashi and just exploring Pshat and Chumash Rashi, very, very accessible level. Um, But on the other hand, when you understand that he and his audience were completely aware of some you know, act of collective punishment where the Nazis rounded up 200 men and shot them all in public or or when, uh, you know, there was rumors that the Nazis were losing in the Western Front and then it turned out that the rumors were false. And you know that that's what the audience is thinking about. Then the Aesopian dimension of his words acquires so much more meaning. That's really what the story is all about. It's not about the fox and the hedgehog. It's about the approaches to life that the mashal Uh, are referring to. That's the nimshal. Uh, And so that's really what the Rebbe is doing over and over again with tremendous creativity and tremendous energy every single week. You you can imagine him reaching deep down to be able to produce these kinds of of visions to give his Hasidim strength. You know, it's a good thing you're asking questions because otherwise I could just talk (laughs) like 60 minutes. Oh, stop about this. 
what are what are some very few some examples of key events that occurred in the ghetto and how the Rebbe responded to them to his audience? Ah, so the, I, my book is replete with these examples. Um, in I mentioned earlier, like there was one passage where. Uh, he fleetingly refers to an event in real time and space. Uh, it's in Toldos 1940, uh, which uh, I believe was around November 1940. I can, I can look it up. I have my copy right here too, but just off the top of my head, November 1940, where the Nazis had just followed up their massive bombing of Warsaw with the physical invasion of the city. And uh, one of the things that they did when they first entered a lot of the towns of, of Eastern Europe is they would identify obviously religious looking Jews and they would ritually humiliate them, you know, order them to come outside and, and put on their prayer shawls so they could photograph them, um, you know, uh, force men and women to kiss each other in public and so on. Uh, and one of the more horrific acts was they would um, shave the beards of religious Jews. Um, again, photographing these, we actually have documentary evidence because they would photograph this to send home pictures to their wives and girlfriends, you know, having a great time here on the Eastern Front, wish you were here. And uh, there were even occasions of, uh, you know, they would grab Jewish children and light their peos on fire. Uh, just horrible, horrible things. And so, the Rebbe on that particular Parsha, he spoke about the different levels of displacement that are referred to in the Haftorah that week, uh, that, that you can have like exile within exile. And he spoke about the idea of being so lost that you can no longer recognize yourself, that you wonder, is this me? Am I even here? Am I even Jewish? And I, the, the, uh, the location of the event that he refers to is he says, when they shave off the beards of Jews. So it's like one, it's, it's one slip as it were in the whole book where he happened to fractionally mention what was actually happening in the streets, but he was addressing the, the loss of status, the loss of self image that were affecting his audience of otherwise, you know, very devout Hasidic Jews who all of a sudden are, are there with half a beard or no beard. And, you know, they're distraught with what has happened to them. This, of course, was relatively minor compared to the far greater punishments and humiliations and, and depredations that they would be subject to, but it was early on in the war. Is there a difference between the Rebbe's earlier threshold sermons and the later ones, especially after the great deportation? Yeah, 100%. And in fact, this is one of the areas where uh, uh, scholars tend to have, um, you know, extended dispute over how to understand the, the Rebbe's relationship to the theology uh, of the, that, that came out of the Holocaust. And in particular, my colleague Shaul Magid and I have had numerous debates online and in person about, you know, um, and kind of like serially about what to make of this. Uh, the Rebbe's drashas clearly change over the course of the war. And uh, there are many factors that could be involved. One thing, for example, is the, the content definitely shifts from fairly simple, fairly brief Chumash Rashi Shiurim that are maybe 
two or three pages of text to when you get to 1942, long involved 10, 15 page drushos involving all kinds of Kabbalistic sources and all kinds of really challenging out there outre Kabbalistic ideals um, as he tries to week after week grapple with the you know, the, the heart of darkness at man's soul and try to understand the question of why does Hashem allow this to happen? Um, and so some scholars have argued that his, uh, his amuna shifted or even broke towards the latter part of the period. Um, I, along with Daniel Reiser and several other scholars, argue that no, his, his amuna, his personal faith, never actually slipped right to the very end. He's constantly writing in the vein of someone who is clearly a monument, someone who clearly still believes in the, in the essential, uh, you know, belief in monotheism of a, a personal God that, that has a, a place in history is not abandoned the Jews. Uh, but it, there, it's, there's no question that at a certain point, and, and I can give you some sense of that specifically when that point was, we all agree that it was in the spring of 1942, um, his, his approach to the whole question changes. His tone becomes much more insistent and demanding. You feel like he is not necessarily any longer in a dialogue with this Hasidim, but now he's directly in a dialogue with God. That he is really asking God from the, from the depths of his soul, I don't understand. Please help me understand. Or more important than understand, please put a stop to this. It's a very, very different kind of, of weight and heft to his words that we find after the spring of 1942. Uh, and so that's where we have among scholars the debate about, well, how do we characterize this? What was the antipodes? Or what was the, uh, what's that's the right word? What was the, uh, I don't know what word I was looking for there. It was Trigger. probably a Trigger. smaller word. It was, I don't remember what it was. What was the uh, ideology of that change, let's say? Yeah. Uh, okay. It's most likely the Groyanowski report, which is when a, uh, a young man escaped from the death camp of Chelmno and uh, smuggled himself into the Warsaw ghetto to speak with the resistance. And he gave the resistance a completely detailed understanding of what was actually happening to the Jews in the ghettos, that they were being sent to these uh, factory-like settings where they were being gassed and then their bodies were cremated. And it was such a stark and, uh, you know, dark vision of what was happening to the Jews of Europe that it, it radicalized the resistance even further. They managed to get it out to the West. And in fact, parts of it were published in the New York Times. I mean, the Groyanowski report had a huge impact. And, and as my, uh, my colleague, Dr. Casso says, we even knew the color of the tiles in the gas chambers at that point. So it was all accurate. Uh, and uh, I and, and many other scholars believe that this is specifically the point where the Piasession Rebbe, when he heard the results of the Groyanowski report, uh, he um, he ultimately had a different kind of shift in the the way in which he approached these issues, and he maintained that posture until his death. You had mentioned this this earlier. Um, what makes the Rebbe's writings unique 
among all the writings from the period of the Shoah? Ah, well, there's there's a lot to this. These are, these are very intelligent questions, I got to say. The um, first of all, uh, it's not a memoir. It's not a private musing of which. Thank God we have many very, very valuable memoirs, several of them from Warsaw itself, which give us uh, uh, an individual person's look at why these things were happening. But of course, memoirs uh, are very much subject to the individual women personality of the people who produce them. Um, and uh, so we can sort of locate it within their socioeconomic status, their religious status, and so on. Uh, this is, on the other hand, a public document. This is a document that was written for other people to consume. It is a record of sermons. Uh, we know from third-hand reporting, like for example, the Rosh Hashim Huberband, that the Rebbe was incredibly popular in the war and that he attracted a large number of followers. Apparently many of them, you know, especially as the war wore on, were of a free-thinking variety. We're not Hasidim at all, but they needed to hear his voice of consolation. So this was a, a, a document that described what was actually publicly consumed by Jews to try to understand what was happening to them. And finally, this is something that was unfolding in real time. So we can see, as we discussed earlier, the Groenowski report, we can see how, at least through the lens of the Rebbe's sermons, uh, Jews tried to understand what was happening to them, you know, in 1939, in 1940, 1941, and we see really remarkable shifts in uh, in, in their self-understanding. But more importantly than the, than the shifts, we understand there was a core of Amuna that penetrated the entire horrific period. Even with the differences earlier and later. Is there an overarching theme in how the Rebbe dealt with the issue of suffering? Uh, uh, that's a tough question. Um, in the book, I sort of, you know, uh, sketch out the different strategies that the Rebbe uses with regards to theodicy, which is uh, a Greek word essentially meaning tzaddik varalo, uh, the, why do the righteous suffer? What, what is the justice of God? How do we understand the justice of God? And um, there have been quite a few books written on that specific topic um, because that's one of the major questions we have after the Holocaust, trying to understand what, what all that means. Um, and, and his responses, um, they range from very traditional kind of, well, this is necessary for the balance of the universe. Uh, people may suffer in this world, but they will receive recompense in the next world, which may be entirely acceptable on a logical level, but is very difficult to accept on a visceral level. Um, and, and then he gets further and further away from those kind of traditional approaches as he digs deeper. And towards the end of the book, there's much more emphasis on the shared suffering of God, that somehow... God is wrapped up, imo anochi b'tzara, using the verse, you know, I am with you in your suffering. Uh, and God is, as it were, engaged in divine weeping over the events that are happening on the planet. And that's very difficult to understand. I think you have to have a mind of a Kabbalist or a philosopher to come close to these things. But to answer your question simply, uh, within the realm of my understanding, 
that sort of characterizes the latter period of his writings. Um, I think it's very difficult to find like one specific theme that he sticks with the entire time because he's he's trying to meet the needs of his constituency. And, and I would argue that perhaps his constituency is no longer being consoled by the easier messages. They need something more substantive. And that's why he goes deeper and deeper. Given that um, Rebbe and obviously others in, in the ghetto had an understanding of what was happening during the war to the Jewish people, um, how, if at all, how did the Rebbe frame what we were looking post, frame the Holocaust within Jewish history? Well, so again, this is one of the uh, unusual aspects of the book because you know this is uh, the Rebbe was was pretty honest about what he felt at the time, and even though we know that he went back in 1942 and edited things, as far as we can tell. Uh, he didn't remove anything. You know, he might draw lines through it as if to say, I don't want this to be published, but he included it in the manuscript. He wanted people to know he was thinking it. Um, fascinating, I think, in, in some ways. Um, and I lost hold of your question. What was the question again? How did the Rebbe frame the oh, yes. within Jewish history? Thank you so much. <laughs> so I think the one of the most often quoted passages of Eish Kodesh is a note that the Rebbe wrote on his drasha of December 1940 in Hanukkah. Uh, he wrote the original drasha, you know, early on in the war, and then probably in late 1942, actually, I think he dated, I think it was August 1942, he went back and he added a paragraph. In the original, uh, he said, it was obviously talking about Hanukkah, talking about the, the war of the Hashmonayim, and he essentially said there, you know, uh, it's really bad now. Again, that unformed now, what exactly, when is that now? Um, but based on, you know, what I know about Jewish history, and uh, it's been bad before. You know, we had the the persecution of the Syrian Greeks, we had the persecution of the pogroms, we had, you know, all kinds of things. And so why should we think that our generation should be exempt from these kinds of things? It, but it's nevertheless, it's part and parcel of what it means to be Jewish. And uh, he's not saying he's happy about it, but he's essentially saying that this is normal. Uh, when he wrote his note uh, on that passage, he didn't delete that whole drasha. He wrote a note and he says, essentially, I was wrong. He says, when I wrote that note, you know, it was December 1940 uh, and only certain things had happened. But after the horrific things that have happened in 1941, and especially the horrible 1942, I can say, and I'm paraphrasing, that based on my knowledge of Jewish history and the entire corpus of rabbinic literature, there's never, ever been a time like this. This is totally new. It's completely unprecedented. And Hashem should save us immediately. So I think that's, you know, probably the biggest takeaway message. And, and it shows also his humility, his intellectual humility and his greatness that, you know, he's willing to take back something and say, I don't really understand this. It's totally beyond my ken. It's terrifying.
As you speak um, about the Aish Kodesh and the work, wonderful work that you did, especially to young people, how and why should young people today study the writings of the Aish Kodesh? Wow, tough question. Um, I, you know, I, I sometimes give this particular book uh, along with usually a check to bar mitzvah boys uh, in my community. Um, because I find that, um, bat mitzvah girls too, I find that kids in the age of adolescence, you know, they're, they're especially curious about the Holocaust. They want to try and understand it, get some way to approach this very, very difficult problem. And what I think makes my book useful for them is that it describes a very holy individual who nevertheless struggled mightily with this problem at that time. His story is not one of, uh, you know, heroic, unmitigated suffering with uh, unwavering dedication to, um, you know, the ideals of Torah. He, he does, of course, embody that. But really, you can see in his writings that he's personally engaged in trying to understand why this is happening to the Jewish people. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, and in the end, he's killed in the context of an uprising against the Nazis. Um, but nevertheless, he, he retains his essential core faith in humanity. And, and I, I believe that's the kind of message that millennials can resonate with, especially in this postmodern age where it's so hard to determine that anything is true, that the best we can do is find something which is authentic. And the Rebbe is clearly authentic. The Rebbe is clearly someone who is not shying away from the very hard questions and putting his best energies into solving them. And that's really what the Jewish condition is all about, in my humble opinion, that, that we have ongoing challenges and we can't understand everything. And if everything was so simple, well, then the whole world would be Jewish and then there wouldn't be enough Asian food for us. So we have to be a very small population. I hope you don't mind that little joke there. I do know that. But that's the, uh, the, the, I think that's why the Rebbe is such a powerful lesson for younger people. And so far, it's, it's been a fairly valued bar mitzvah present, at least as far as I can tell. Maybe they have too many fountain pens and a book thrown in is not so bad. We can continue and continue, but uh, again, uh, urge all of our listeners and viewers, we got just a bit of a taste. Um, it's really required reading. That's, I, there's no other way to say it. It's required reading. It's something that, that must be read and, and studied. And uh, Professor Abramson, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you about a topic about which I am quite passionate.